Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are beginning to wrap up our series on the book of Daniel, and here the guys will be talking about the first portion of Daniel chapter 12. We're also beginning to wrap up our series on the Sermon on the Mount over on our YouTube channel with Peter Lighthart, and we put a link down there in the show notes for you to go and check out that series. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 12. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is finishing up a sabbatical and is uh, at the beach this week uh, and uh, enjoying some time off. Uh, Jeff will rejoin us uh, in the next few weeks with uh, as we go into a new series. We're, we're coming to the end of a series in the book of Daniel. We've been doing prophetic literature for a number of months. We did a couple of episodes on prophecy in general, and then we went through the prophet, uh, book of the prophet Jonah. And then for the last several months, we've been going slowly through Daniel and taking a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of episodes per chapter in the book of Daniel. Uh, and this week we come to the end of Daniel. We're going to be doing Daniel 12, uh, the final chapter today. And then next week we'll do a wrap-up session trying to summarize some of the things we learned from our studies together in the book of Daniel. Uh, and to find some uh, applications to uh, our current situation, the current situation of the church. Uh, Daniel 12 is the conclusion of the book, but it's also the conclusion more narrowly of uh, a section that began in chapter 10. As I've noted before, uh, the last several chapters of Daniel are divided into four, uh, a series of four visions of Daniel. Daniel moves from being an interpreter of visions to being a visionary himself, beginning in chapter 7. And chapter 7 and 8 go together because they're both uh, visions that he sees and receives during the Babylonian period of his life. And then the last two visions in chapter 9 and then chapters 10 through 12 are visions that he sees in the Persian period. And we're coming to the end of that second vision, which takes up the final three chapters of Daniel. Uh, And... During that vision, as we've seen in the last number of episodes, uh, we looked at Daniel 10, where Daniel encounters an angel uh, at the river, the Tigris River, uh, and that uh, he has a, he falls on his face. He goes through this death and resur- resurrection experience. He's brought back to life to receive the vision, and the vision covers the period from uh, the uh, from Darius uh, and Cyrus, the beginning of the Persian Empire, quickly moves into the Greek. Uh, the Greek Empire and Alexander. There's a brief reference to Alexander as the mighty king. Uh, and then there's a complex series of visions about the uh, various struggles of uh, different successors to Alexander. The, so you, Alexander's empire, of course, splits up into a number of different zones, and particularly what uh, the writer of Daniel is interested in, the visions are interested in. Daniel himself, I should say, he's the writer of Daniel, I believe. Uh, what Daniel's interested in, what the visions show him, are struggles between the king of the north and the king of the south. These are the Hellenistic post-Alexander kingdoms in Syria, ruled by the Seleucid dynasty, and the Greek dynasty that established itself in Egypt, which is the Ptolemaic dynasty. And you have a struggle between the north and the south for a time. Finally, the triumph of the north, 
under Antiochus III, who is one of the characters that appears in chapter 11. Antiochus IV is, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the great enemy of the Jews in the Maccabean period. Uh, he tries to force them to Hellenize. He violates the temple. He persecutes and, and uh, kills those who resist among the Jews. And that is all being described in this vision in chapter 11. Last time we looked at the concluding vision in 11, which uh, begins in 1136, which identifies the king. And we all agreed that that's a different king from the one who's been described. Uh, the king of verse 36 and following is not the same as the despicable man that's described from verse 20 and 21 on. But um, the king, uh, I think, and Alistair took the same position, the king in the latter part of chapter 11 is uh, the Herod, uh, Herod the Great or the Herodian dynasty. Uh, James, as I recall, was taking a, a more eschatological view and seeing that as the the uh, that as a vision of the of the final end of all things. But that brings us into chapter 12, and there are a number of indications that chapter 12 is linking back to the beginning of chapter 10 and forming uh, the conclusion to this vision. Uh, chapter 12 includes the statement, I, Daniel, saw, uh, and it can, uh, that's, a, that's a statement that's used at the beginning of chapter 10. It's used again in chapter 12. Again, we are at the scene at the river. Uh, we forget during chapter 11 that Daniel's still standing at the river. He's seeing these visions while he's beside the Tigris. But that's the setting in chapter 10. It's a continuing setting, impl implicit setting in chapter 11, and that becomes explicit again uh, in chapter 12. And again, Dan Daniel sees the man clothed in linen that he saw at the beginning. Uh, here, uh, the chapter 12, we learned that he's above the waters of the river, and there are a couple of uh, other angels that are there with him whom we've all already encountered. So there's a number of indications that we're at the end of this, uh, this final vision uh, that binds these chapters together. And I think also we can, one final introductory comment, we can also see links between the visions in chapters uh, 10 through 12 and the visions that we've been seeing uh, prior to that. So chapter 7 introduces four beasts. These are four empires that rise from the sea of the nations. And these four empires are, uh, I think, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire in its different phases. And those are all overcome by the Son of Man. And I think we're, we, we have kind of a, uh, Alistair has used the term telescope. We had kind of a telescope view in chapter 11, focusing down more on the details of what's happening in this same period, the period of the latter part of the Greek empires into the Roman period. Uh, we focus down into what's happening in Palestine and the surrounding territories uh, in chapter 11. Uh, and then overcome, we have the overcomer or the victor in the, in the, figure, of, in the figure of Michael who appears at the beginning of chapter 12. So we have the similar kind of sequence, struggles and, and uh, 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 battles, empires, uh, empires that are threats to Israel, and that comes out more clearly in chapter 11, but then a final victory over those empires. I think we uh, also seem to have a link, as we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to the end of chapter 12, we also have a link to the uh, vision of the 70 weeks that's at the end of Daniel 9. Uh, the 70 weeks are divided into three sections. There's a 62-week uh, period, there's, uh, there's a 7-week uh, period, a 62-week period, and then a final week. Uh, and at the end of uh, Daniel, we seem to have repetitions of that, that triadic structure of time. Time, times, and half a time is one phrase that's used in chapter 12. And then we have uh, the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days. I think that those are also can be uh, factored into a triadic kind of 
structure. So we, we seem to have some kind of allusion back to that, at least a kind of formal allusion back to that vision of the, of the 70 weeks in chapter nine. So uh, that kind of sets a, sets a, uh, a uh, gives us a setting. Uh, chapter 12 begins with, uh, at that time, presumably it's talking about the time that's just been described at the end of chapter 11. We have continuation of the same vision. Uh, and then Michael, the great prince, stands who stands over the son of your uh, sons of the people he will stand up as a guardian so that's the that's the opening scene we have michael appearing on the scene in the midst of the time of the king that's been described at the latter part of chapter 11 michael has of course already appeared in the vision at the beginning of um or at the end of chapter 10 and i would argue is also to be identified with the man clothed clothed in linen at the beginning of chapter 10. It seems to me that when we're reading these prophecies, often we can be more focused upon the particular events and when they occur. But often what we find in scripture is that the focus is more upon the meaning and the persons. Um, When we think about New Testament prophecy of Christ's coming, it's not so much about a particular time scale as about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's about him rather than about a particular date. And where we would tend to focus might miss where the actual accent of the text lies. I think that's I think that's right, but I I, I imagine you would agree with this. I don't I don't think we should uh, dismiss the temporal markers and uh, I think that's that's part of what's being revealed: the temporal markers and the events and the and the particular the particular people that are involved. Um, I mean, right right from the beginning of the Bible, we see an interest in marking dates and times. And um, so, I think when we get to the prophetic books and they're telling us uh, about uh, you know seventy weeks or a time, times and half a time, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't detemporalize those references. Although I agree with you, I certainly agree with you about Revelation that the the story is about the unveiling of Jesus in His bride. That's the that's the overall story, and the the, the temporal the temporal markers are subordinate to that. To clarify, perhaps um, when we see at the beginning of this vision an unveiling of the man clothed in linen, who I'd identify as Michael, Daniel is getting, as it were. Um, an anticipation of the fulfillment that's awaited. And so in that sense, since it's about the arising and unveiling of a particular figure, Michael, the great prince, he has a guarantee in advance in seeing the glory of that prince at the beginning of his vision. Right. Quick comment about Michael's actual position. Um, He's stationed above the river, isn't he? Which sounds significant. In um, chapter seven, we have this sort of great sweeping vision where kingdoms are dealt with relatively briefly. And that is set against the backdrop of this great sea, this massive churning body of water, and out of it come four distinct beasts. And we really just get a quick snapshot of each. Um, here things seem a bit more, bit different. There, there is this stream, I, I, I'm thinking of it as a, a more narrow body of water with a clearer sort of direction of travel. And that seems to fit the, um, the flow of the vision. There is more detail, there's more sequence to it. We do see the 
kingdoms, each of them sort of gradually evolve and the ebb and flow of different kings from the north and south. And I wonder if the angel's position sort of hovering above this um, uh, body of water is significant that the angel is kind of dictating, as it were, the flow of flow of time and the course of world history as it, as it runs beneath the, the angel. Yeah, it does seem like there's some uh, particular link between visions and rivers. And I, I started, th- I tried to think about this and I'm sure there's more to explore here, but it seems like there's a particular emphasis on it uh, in the exilic period, maybe. I mean, Ezekiel is by the uh, uh, Kibar uh, when the when the glory of the Lord appears to him. Daniel is beside a river here. The analogies I could think of prior to that are uh, Jacob, you know, wrestles with God at the at the Jabbok. So he's about to cross into the promised land across a across a stream of some sort, and uh, there's a theophany there. Or Joshua, uh, as he's at the at the Jordan, and the captain of the Lord's hosts is there. To assure him that he's going to fight the battle as they as they're crossing over the Jordan into the land that he's assuring them, or they've already crossed, right? They they're across by the time uh, the captain of the Lord's hosts appears to him. It seems that you have uh, this maybe perhaps more common in the exilic period. Um, we had one of our Theopolis Fellows graduates, uh, Cameron Edenfield, preached at a church in Birmingham this past week, and he was uh, preaching on Psalm forty six and talking about the river that makes glad the city of God that flows through Zion. And he used the interesting phrase, he didn't elaborate on it, but he just uh, spoke of it briefly. He says, when when uh, the Lord goes into exile with his people, uh, it's as if he takes that river with him. He was making the argument that the river is a sign and of the presence of God. And it's as if the Lord takes, in taking his chariot with him, he takes the river uh, that is the the sign of his presence, and then reveals himself in these various river settings. Rivers do seem to stand for particular nations in various parts in Scripture, particularly in prophecy. You have um, the connection between the Euphrates and the Assyrians at various points, or the Nile and the Egyptians, um, Pharaoh being the monster in the Nile. And elsewhere in Scripture, we can see the way that Israel is defined by these bodies of water. Um, and its relationship to various other nations. When a nation is rising up, for instance, the Assyrians at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, right. it's depicted as the rise of a great river. Um, Israel has these rivers as boundaries of its identity spiritually. So their forefathers worshipped other gods on the far side of the river, um, receiving their name Israel for the first time in the fort, at the ford of the Jabbok or the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian or the drowning of their babies in the Nile or the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. And at various other points in their history, these bodies of water stand for people groups and transitions that mark their own identity. And so the fact that these um, visions or um, oracles would be delivered in that context, I think is appropriate. It's These are places of um, transition and movement, of flow of forces in history. And we might also connect this back to the original rivers, the rivers that mm-hmm. flow out from the riverhead in, um, in Eden. Yeah, it sounds to me, Alistair, as if you've been teaching a course on baptism. I'm and, very mal- well, may have been. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, thinking about water passes, uh, water passages a lot. 
Yeah, uh, the rivers rivers form the boundaries of lands. Uh, the the word for bank and what one of the things that's interesting here is that you not only have the river with the figure in linen over the waters, but you have a figure on either side of the water. So you have a kind of triptych with the uh, with the one in the middle. Um, I think you're right, Alistair, that that's that's Michael, the one in linen, uh, who is speaking and raising his hand. But the the word for the banks is the word uh, basically the word lit. So you have uh, the the two lips of the river, and you have angels on either side of the two lips of the river, which started me thinking along the lines of rivers as flows of words. Uh, uh, that that kind of imagery is sometimes used in scripture that. Uh, the, the words of the wise are like a, a spring of water in the Proverbs. Uh, and uh, you have a rebel. So revelation by a river and on the river bank seems to be, seems to have play on that, on that uh, terminology. And of course we, we could also think, I think Jim Jordan points this out in his commentary that the, the figure hovering over the waters suggests a, a Genesis one, two setting uh, where um the spirit is over the face of the waters at the beginning of the creation. And uh, so we, uh, you know, perhaps we're supposed to think of a, of the spirit himself as the, as the figure that's uh, being revealed there. Meanwhile, in this sort of climactic moment that's described in verse one onwards, there seems to be quite a lot of Exodus shaped stuff going on. Um, Just as there is said to be in the plagues, a hail, um, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Um, we get the same thing here, although in, in even more global terms, since there was a nation, um, uh, nothing this dramatic has been seen. And the particular word for river here, I'm pretty sure when it's used in the singular, it's always a reference to the Nile, um, even if there's the odd exception. I, I would say, you know, it's a very, very common word and almost always um, in the context of, of the Nile. And it feels to me that in all this climax, there is that in the, in the backdrop of, of, um, uh, of, of this finale to the book of Daniel. We um, commented previously that the vision comes to its climax with the rise of Michael. And yet with the rise of Michael, the immediate impact is that things get worse. Um, you know, the great prince arises and then there is a great time of trouble and we could liken this to um the rise of moses i guess he, he is the person who has charge um of israel he's over them as it were and when god sends them uh, to moses the immediate impact is, is that things get worse um he speaks to pharaoh and pharaoh says right i'm going to make things even harder for you you've obviously got too much you know too much material on your hands and, and too much time, you know, so I'll, I'll make things more difficult. And so it, it seems that that that's part of what's going on here. Yeah. The other connection that I would make with the phrase uh, uh, in verse one, which has never occurred until that time uh, is the Olivet discourse where Jesus talks about uh, a, a tribulation such as never has happened. Uh, and say, it's the same kind of pattern. That's a, the Exodus, connection is really, really good. And it's the same kind of pattern with Jesus. Now the great prince has come, the Messiah has come, and instead of uh, rescuing his followers from tribulation, he leads them into a tribulation. I mean, he himself goes through the tribulation and uh, comes out the other side of it, but then his his disciples follow him in that into that same tribulation, which is like none other. I mean, I wonder if we can generalize from that too, that uh, 
this is the beginning of a rescue. And when the rescuer appears, the initial, the initial effect is not an immediate rescue, but an intensification of the, of the distress. And it seems like that does happen in, in other, uh, in other places. I mean, you, you have something of that in, uh, in some uh, parts of the book of judges where the, the, you know, a judge arises and creates more turmoil. I'm thinking of Samson in particular, who creates a lot more turmoil for uh, Israel than uh, they had had from the Philistines before. Cause he's, you know, he's provoking the provoking the response. So when a great prince arises, the, the tyrants realize that this great prince is a threat. And so they buckle down even more. And that's, that's part of the, part of the process of rescue even though the initial, the initial effect is uh, tribulation and pain. When looking at the Exodus connections here, um, there are a number of just visually a number of things that come to mind. Um, the deliverance, the deliverance at the Red Sea, in part, um, with the figures on either side of the stream, and then the one in the centre. We don't. One of the curious features in Scripture is we don't ever have bridges in scripture, there's no mention of them. Um, presumably there were plenty of bridges in the ancient world, but they're not usually mentioned in the text, which suggests to me that this might be some sort of bridge, some crossing for the, for the river is provided. And also the image of the defeat of the Amalekites with one raising hands, left and right hands to heaven, and then two supporting characters on either side. I'll want to return to the Exodus motifs when we get to the end of the chapter and start talking about some of the about the numbers and the time frames that are mentioned there. Uh, I want to see if we can think about the the setting for the fulfillment. So I'll just state my my view and then uh, see if see if the two of you agree with this. Um, given the at that time of at the beginning of uh, verse one, it links back to the previous section. So if um, the last part of chapter eleven is about the events surrounding the time of Jesus and the, the, the coming of the Herods, then the rise of Michael, the great prince, would be the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the distress that follows would include the distress that, of Jesus himself, but also the distress of his disciples in the first generation after his death and resurrection. Uh, and that also would suggest that the, the resurrection that's described in verse 2, those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake uh, and... Uh, some will shine like the brightness of the firmament. Others will, those will lead many to righteous will be like stars forever. Uh, that's talking about the rebirth of, uh, I think, uh, of the church. And I'm thinking ahead to Revelation again, where uh, a large part of the story of Revelation is the uh, resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the saints to their thrones, particularly the resurrection of the martyrs to their thrones. Uh, and it's the restoration of the church after its tribulation. So I'm taking that as a reference not to uh, the general resurrection at the end of the ages, but to a resurrection of uh, either the nation of Israel or the the new Israel that rises following the ministry of Jesus. What do you all think of that? Thinking the first three verses is following that sequence. I would agree with that. I think we have in the previous chapter. Um, an outline of events from the middle of the 6th century onwards. We have the rise of the Greeks, the Six Syrian Wars, the persecutions of Antiochus IV, the Maccabean Revolt, and then the Herodian dynasty. And that, in its timetable, would seem to lead up to the time of Christ. And then 
adding to that, I think we have the reference. I'm not sure I'd identify it purely with the first resurrection. I think it's a bit more complicated. It includes the first resurrection, but there is also the um, rising of some to shame and everlasting contempt, which suggests that it's the first resurrection and something else. Um, elsewhere, we have the reference here to um, sealing up the record, sealing up the prophecy and the words until the time of the end. We have a similar reference in the book of Revelation, but it's not to seal up. And there's the reference to the time, time, half a time. We have that in Revelation too. So many of the details within this, the prophecy of this chapter are picked up within um, the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, and then also in the book of Revelation, where they would seem to be related to the events of AD 70. And for that reason, it would seem to me that this is um, what this passage is looking forward to as well. I mean, my own inclination, for whatever it's worth, is, is to think that verse 2 is referring to the physical resurrection when it talks about um, people who sleep in the dust of the earth um, awaking, um, some to life and, and, and some to everlasting contempt. It, it feels to me like this very physical, visible thing, and I guess that would um, incline me to think it, it is referring to the, the great last day and, and to a yet future event um so i guess we're in slightly different places there but i mean well one thing that probably i i think we would agree on is, is that this resurrection event is, is just absolutely vital for the logic of the whole book isn't it um i mean the book of daniel calls us to serve a kingdom which, which may well get us killed you know it, it calls us to defy kings when they tell us to bow before their statues and to pray if it means ending up in the lion's den and why is that worth it you know um it, it, because of the resurrection and because there will ultimately be justice done in our universe and um while this is an explicit statement of the resurrection um there are echoes and whispers of the resurrection throughout the text aren't there we have the hebrews raised up from the furnace we have nebuchadnezzar in the wilderness in the wasteland overgrown with hair like in a place of death we have daniel raised up from the pit and so forth so we have kind of foreshadows of the resurrection um and uh, occasions when people are sort of rescued from their earthly trials um but in chapter 11 we have a number of people who are not rescued we have the wise um stumbling and and falling and in antiochus's day it seems to me that things were far better for those who compromised, you know, for the Jews who were willing to um, Hellenize and go along with Antiochus's decree, they were rewarded and, and had positions of power in society and, and so forth. So, you know, what was the purpose? Why not just go along with Antiochus? And, and uh, you know, the answer is because there is a, a, an eternity of everlasting life or, or everlasting contempt to come. So it feels just a, a very significant thing in terms of the book. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, and I think that uh, one thing I was going to add to that is the the re the standing up from the dust is uh, that's another kind of inclusio around the final vision because that's what happens to Daniel at the beginning of the vision when he first encounters the angel. Now we're back to that scene, and uh, the prophecy is of others joining Daniel in coming up from the dust and standing from the dust. But I think it's it's also interesting that I mean you often have. Uh, 
Daniel 12.2 cited as one of the very few references to resurrection that we have in the Old Testament. And I think your take on it, James, is exactly right, that what we have here is a more explicit statement of what's really been going on through the whole book. And in some sense, it's the whole history, the whole story of Israel is a story of death coming, uh, of life coming from death. I mean, that's, that's the story of Isaac uh, coming from a dead womb, uh, coming from the death uh, on Mount Moriah, the near death on Mount Moriah. Uh, so th- the whole history of Israel is a history of uh, resurrections. Uh, and it's not just this one isolated verse, but it's this one verse that sheds light over the whole book. And the, the message of the whole book is a message of uh, confidence in a God who raises those uh, raises us from the dust. I, I want to point. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, verse three. One phrase there: uh, the 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 uh, uh, those who have insight shine like the like the firmament. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars. And it's the lead many to righteousness. Uh, that's uh, I think it's the exact same phrase that you have in Isaiah fifty three when it's talking about the servant who will justify the many. Uh, it's the verb, the verb form of uh, justify, and it's tra- being interpreted here as leading many to righteous. But um, what if you have any other thoughts on the link with Isaiah fifty-three, and also what uh, what that might mean? Um, I mean, is is leading to righteousness? Is that the right interpretation of the verb in this setting? I think you're right that it's the same as um, Isaiah fifty-three. I mean, it's a, a you know, a causative um, stem here is participle. Um, and so making many righteous could be, uh, could be a sense of it. You know, it could have a more, um, more forensic slant to it, I, w- I would guess, in light of Isaiah 53. So the, the, the thought would be then, I suppose, that you have a servant uh, in Isaiah 53 who, um, by his suffering, uh, justifies the many or leads many to righteousness or leads many to God's justice or however we want to do that. Here we have a company of people. This is many who are doing that. Those, those who have insight, those who justify. Uh, so we have a, not, we have a, we have a, a company of people who are leading to righteousness and they're going to be shining like the stars of the heavens, uh, elevated to those positions of, of rule and authority. Right. I mean, this is the same sort of language which is used of Daniel 1 in his very selection, isn't it? When people are uh, uh, chosen out youths without blemish and, and so forth, they are um, men of insight, you know, skillful in all wisdom. And, and then we have in verse, verse 17, I think, chapter uh, 1, when God gives them um, learning and, and skill in literature um, and, and wisdom and, and so on. And, and so it, it's... Um, Again, it's one of these things which is continuing the um, uh, uh, the theme initially. You know, that among um, among the exiles, uh, there are specific leaders who God will give um, wisdom and whose job it is to inform and, and give insight to the um, to the many. You know, to Israel as a whole. Hmm. Paul picks up on some of the language here in um, Philippians chapter two, fourteen to fifteen. Um, to 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Right. Also, maybe present is is um, uh, another passage is my influence, I should say, is um, 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? Insofar as we have the um, resurrection and then this picture of the, the saints as um, like the stars. And there, Paul's idea is that each star has its own individual glory, you know. And, and so here, I guess, we've had in the last um chapter the wise being purified and um purged and you know part of their trials and stumbling is that it will refine them and here they are now um brought through the trials and their final state is one which which glorifies god um there they are kind of shining out his glory and joining some of the dots in scripture together in revelation chapter 12 we have the rising up of michael and fighting against the dragon who brings down many of the stars with him. And it seems to me that the righteous shining like stars, they're replacing the stars that are brought down by the victory of Michael. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And of course the uh, stars are uh, Israel, right? Abraham has promised to have, that he will have uh, descendants like this. He'll have a seed like the stars of the heaven, like the dust of the earth. So the true Israel that's being elevated here and being shining is the ones who have been brought through that distress, raised from the dust and elevated, who've gone through the the same uh, the same uh, tribulation as the servant of the Lord and uh, share in His glory, even as they shared in His sufferings. Uh, I mean, we have stars, and I've been I've been teaching on uh, Genesis one for the last several months in a Sunday school class, and I'm thinking about day four now, and thinking about the the function of stars as. Uh, uh, providing some light at night. I mean, you don't get a lot of light from the stars, but what you get from the stars is uh, orientation. Think, trying to imagine what it would be like to try to try to uh, navigate at night before you figured out that there was a fixed star, <laughs> that there's a north star that you can orient yourself to, or figure out that the moon has certain patterns of movement that help you orient in space. And it's it's shining light. It's illuminating, but it's also providing direction. And marking time and and uh, and seasons that uh, that's part of what the the those who have insight those who lead many to righteousness are doing. They're also like the firmament. The firmament, of course, is the boundary between uh, the lower world and the upper world, between earth broadly speaking and the highest heavens. Uh, and uh, those who are, have insight are are put in that position of being like the firmament, that boundary between heaven and earth. Boundaries are both separating. You know, any boundary both separates and joins. It's a it's a point of it's the point of mediation, which both uh, bounds off to two territories, but also is the point of their intersection. And so the those who have insight or play that role in in the world uh, as the bright firmament that uh, that is uh, mediating between heaven between heaven and earth. Right, and there's an important um, aspect of wisdom here, isn't there? Wisdom throughout the book isn't this thing that is to be kept to the individual so he can be shut away in his room being as wise as he possibly can. You know, wisdom is something which benefits others. And so here it is turning many to righteousness. Um, in chapter one, Daniel's wisdom in, in dreams and so on um, basically saved the whole cast of wise men in the palace. And um, he probably, it seems to me, had uh, the diet changed for a lot of his fellow Israelites in chapter one. And 
that seems to be a, a function of wisdom here. It, it's given for edification, you know, a, a gift right. given, if we're talking about now the church um, context, for the building up of the body. We've, we've uh, already talked about the, the scene that begins in verse 5 where we're brought back to Daniel beside the river and with a couple of angels on either side of the river and then uh, Michael, uh, the man dressed in linen who's hovering above the waters. I think when we talked about uh, this figure in the past, we recognized the, the priestly garments that he's wearing, uh, raised, uh, uh, clothed in linen, uh, perhaps particularly a kind of Day of Atonement illusion it's the day when the high priest would take off his usual garments of glory and beauty and, and clothe himself completely in linen. Uh, one of the things, we, we mentioned the fact that he's got both hands in the air. Uh, Alistair, I think, rightly is linking that with Moses. You have two figures on either side of the river, and then you have a figure in the middle with both hands in the air. That, that, uh, that triptych is, a, is Moses with uh, Aaron and her on either side of him, holding up his hands in prayer. So this figure is... Uh, is in a posture of a posture of intercession as the saints are battling with the Amalekites below and uh, are uh, fighting to uh, claim the promised land. But he's the, the, the other, the specific thing he does when he raises both hands is to swear by the one who lives forever. And the oath has to do with the timing of these things. I think this is unprecedented. It's, it's unique in the Bible to have an oath, done with with both hands in the air rather than a single hand the the lord often says that i raised my hand and swore and specifically he raises his hands raises his hand and swears that he's going to give the land to uh israel uh, that's the content of the oath but um uh, this angel is swearing with both hands michael is swearing with both hands and then the oath is about the timing so I'm, both of those details are curious and i wonder what you're what your thoughts are we have a similar scene in revelation chapter 10 um but it's an angel who's standing on the sea and on the land raising his right hand to heaven um, he swears by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay and i wonder what we're supposed to make of that against this background whether that it helps or just makes things more complicated i suppose a little of both <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say something, if I may, about this um, shattering of the power of the holy people, because that seems to be where this vision is aiming. And I'm not sure quite how the oath and so forth fit into it, but I do think it fits into what we spoke about previously in chapter 11. So we mentioned, or at least I mentioned and wasn't greeted by a sort of violent objection, um, that the purpose and the thrust of what was going on there was the the uniting of north and south under one figure you know un, under one banner and authority and um that then seems to be the the way things are heading in chapter 11 but here we're told it's the shattering of the power of the holy people which is the um end point and i think these two things are fundamentally connected very often in history, Israel could, although she was weak, could obtain some sort of power or agency in the world by kind of backing the right horse, by going towards Egypt if uh, Syria uh, 
kind of look too powerful and getting help there or, you know, trying to back the right horse. You can even compare the sort of function of the Christian vote as a kingmaker in, in the present sort of, uh, or in, in certain countries in, in the present world anyway. And, um, you know, th- there was always that temptation for Israel. But once Israel just came, was kind of uh, an island, you know, it was just part of a whole interconnected kingdom where North and South were under the dominion of, of one particular overlord. Um, that power had, had gone, you know, and that, to my mind at least, happened particularly in the days of, of the Romans. And so kind of in the Gospels, we see uh, the Jewish people with very little power in, in in that sense. There was very little kind of wheeling and dealing that could be uh that could be done because Rome was was overall, and so um, I think the um, the way things come to a head here is that there is a, a great power that's risen and united North and South, and that has shattered the the power of, of the holy people. What do you make of the uh, phrase "time, times, and half a time"? And I'm uh, I'm I'm going to suggest that it's linked to the uh, the next. Uh, time references. You have two different dialogues going on in the last part of Daniel 12. You have uh, one of the angels on the banks, uh, one of the banks of the river asks the the man dressed in linen who's above the waters a question and he answers. Then Daniel asks a question and he gets an answer. Uh, And both of those answers include time references. The first one is time times and half a time. The second one is a statement about from the Time the regular sacrifices abolished and the abomination of desolation set up, 1290 days, and then another 45 days that take you to the 1335 days. Uh, and um, I pick this up from Jim Jordan as usual, but he suggests that there's a link between those two time designations, that the time times and half a time is, in, is a threefold way of designating a certain time, <clears throat> certain stretch of time. And the 1290 days and 1335 also has that kind of structure. The 1290 is three times 430. 430 is the years of exile in, uh, or the years of uh, suppression by Egypt. And so the 1290 days would be a triple uh, Egyptian sojourn. uh, And then an additional kind of halftime with quotation marks around it, the 45 days that take you to the. Take you to the uh, some kind of uh, conclusion, a rescue from the uh, from the triple suppression, the triple Egyptian oppression. Uh, maybe a reference to the uh, to the time of the, the conquest. So, but that's uh, you could divide that into uh, two four hundred thirties plus an additional partial time that would match up structurally with the time times and half a time. Does that um, you all have other other thoughts about the time references? Well, we have um, a previous reference to the time times and half a time in um, reference to the little horn in chapter 7, verse 25. Um, In Revelation, we have a number of forms in which that is given. So a time times half a time is one plus two plus a half, which in months, if we measure that in years, would be 42 months. And that's referenced in Revelation, as is 1,260 days which is another way of um, measuring three and a half years. In this particular instance, I think um, it's worth remembering, as Jordan remarks, the period of 430 years being connected with the Egyptian um, slavery. 
but that's already been set apart as a a time of signif prophetic significance. Ezekiel in chapter four of his book has to perform a symbolic or prophetic sign act where he lies on his side, on his left side, and then on his right side for 390 days and then an extra 40 days, um, making up 430. So that would seem to correspond. So we have three significant periods associated with the um, the Exodus. And then um, those call back to a previous event where there has been a previous time, times and half a time, which could be seen again. It's a broken week of years. It's half a week of years. We've had a reference to a half week of years earlier on in chapter nine, at the end of chapter nine. So these are already established symbolic values within the book. And putting pieces together, I think we've had anticipations of what this might mean in previous events. Um, so what happens with Antarchus, for instance, I think is an anticipation of what's going to happen in this later end time. Yeah, the, the exact intervals aren't entirely clear to me. I mean, one uh, idea I had is, is whether there's just an allusion to a 75-day period of, of, of some kind. So um, uh, as Alistair says, one of the ways in which these 42 months can be counted is as 1,260 days. And so we've got kind of an extra 75 um, after the kind of uh, after the beast has been removed, like after the great climactic battle has been fought. And um, I, I, I wonder if that could allude to various things. I mean, there, there seems to be a 75 day um, period in which the floodwaters um, assuage. You, you have the, um, I think it's probably the, uh, what is it, the 17th day of the um, 10th month, is it, in, um, in the flood narrative, um, going to the first day of the next year. And so if you count inclusively, you have 75 days um, there. And I wonder if there's some sort of you know, settling of the dust um, uh, period uh, alluded to here. Um, something else I, I, I wondered about is that um, in Exodus 19, we, we've noted a few Exodus connections here. Um, there's a, a very curious time in the in indicator. It talks about kind of something like the, the third moon after they left. Um, after they left Egypt, and if Israel left Egypt on the fifteenth, you know, on the on the day of the Passover, um, and you have sort of three moons after that, that could be 75, um, 75 days. Um, especially because it's actually the third day of the third moon when they actually sort of gathered together at the foot of Mount Sinai, and so I wonder if there's kind of some allusions to kind of great deliverance and then um a, a waiting period before something else um before some new age begins uh, the message to daniel in in and when he asked his question in both the uh, both cases verse 9 and then again in verse 13 is to go uh he's um, to go because the words are concealed and sealed until the end time he's to go to the end when he will receive his allotted portion, he'll receive what's what's uh, allotted to him at the end of the age. So uh, uh, there's a dismissal of Daniel from his from his uh, ministry, I guess, from his uh, role as a prophet, uh, and he's uh, 
he sent off. Sent, I mean, he's the he, he's the uh, the great American hero who's being who's riding away into the sunset at the end of his book, uh, sent off by the angel. What, what I, I'm thinking that uh, he's promised some kind of share in the end that's been talked about in the last vision, the, the vision that covers chapters ten through twelve. Daniel is not going to be alive at that time, obviously, uh, but he's promised that he'll enter into his rest. He'll stand again. He'll receive his allotted portion at the end. Um, and that suggests to me that this is, I mean, the, the word end has been used. Uh, I don't know. I counted them up, but I don't remember the number, but it's been used repeatedly in this last vision. And uh, uh, so Daniel, even though Daniel's going off the scene, he's going to be in a time of rest and waiting until this, uh, until this, uh, until the, the end of whatever age is being talked about here. Also, in addition to verses 9 and 13, you have a similar statement in verse 4, um, which suggests also some purpose that his prophecy is going to perform over the intervening period. There's going to be lots of drama, people running to and fro, but those who meditate upon the prophecy will find that their knowledge increases. It won't be unsealed until the end. And then in the book of Revelation, you see the unsealing, as it were, of um, the prophecy. But that rising up at the end, I would associate with the first resurrection. I think there is more going on because there is also the um, shame and everlasting contempt of some. But those who were formerly resting in Sheol um, were raised up by Christ to sit with him in the glory of heaven. And so if we read about what happens after death in the Old Testament, it's fairly negative portrayal for the most part. People are removed from the drama of life, even the righteous. Um, there's not the same worship of God after in the realm of the dead. And there is a division between the righteous and the wicked, but both have gone to the grave. Whereas after the death and resurrection of Christ, there is an exaltation from the grave of some who'd form, formerly slept there in the first resurrection. And I think also we see, along with this, events such as the rising of certain of the saints and appearing to people in the city in the book of Matthew, for instance, um, perhaps as an indication of what's taking place, that this is an event of significance, not just in terms of the final resurrection, but also in terms of the raising up of people who had been um, the martyrs beneath the altar, but then also those who had been in the bosom of Abraham and Sheol in the grave, but were now being brought it up into the rule of heaven itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think that's uh, just to add, add another kind of line of argument in, in favor of that. Um, Hebrew, Hebrews talks about Jesus being the forerunner into the most holy place. He's, he's the one who uh, is the pioneer who makes the way, which means that uh, there is not yet a way into the full, um, if you want to think of it in terms of, in terms of a sanctuary, which Hebrews invites us to do, there's not an entry. No one enters into the most holy place, the heavenly most holy place before Jesus does. And I, I, the, this is an extrapolation from the way that Hebrew envisions it, but I think it's valid that the saints were in somehow in the presence of God. They enjoyed, uh, the, they, they were in a place of joy and bliss. Um, those saints of the Old Testament who died, 
uh, but they were in the kind of the, the courtyard of the heavenly sanctuary. And what happens in the, in the coming of Christ and the ascension of Christ to make a way into the, into the most holy place is that not only do we here now have access to that heavenly most holy place, but all those saints who have died are now uh, brought up together from the, from the courtyard into the, into the most holy place by the great high priest. So I think Hebrews gives us a way of um, uh, another, another angle for thinking about what you've just been talking about, Alistair. Jesus, of course, also talks of two resurrections in John 5, um, that there are people already in that moment in time hearing the voice of the Son of God and living, and this is a sign of the Son's authority to execute judgment. But then there will be an hour yet to come when those in the tombs will hear his voice. So the idea of two resurrections is one that we find in various parts of Scripture. Something else to think about might be this phrase, everlasting contempt, which um, I've just checked that. It's the same phrase, only appears one other place in the Old Testament, which is in um, Isaiah's visions of the new heavens and the new earth. And there when people go up to um, Jerusalem to worship the Lord, um, they look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled um, against God. And it talks about them there as being um, a, a contempt, sometimes translated as like abhorrence. And I, I know it's a, a difficult thing to think about, but it, it seems that the resurrected dead here are a part of, of God's um, restored earth in, in some way, and they are um, visible, and they are um, a reminder of God's justice and God's um, stamping down of, of those who have rebelled against them. And um, uh, those are kind of just as much, I guess, a part of the new heavens uh, or perhaps not just as much, but uh, just as the wires are shining like stars and, and being, um, you know, lights and luminaries, these are counterexamples. These um, these ones who um, uh, experience contempt, and uh, it's important to bear that in mind. I think. Mm-hmm. I do. I do want to pick up on one uh, one detail um, back in verse four, uh, Alistair. You referred to the phrase "many will go back and forth" or "run back and forth" in some translations. And um, uh, that's possibly connected with all the toing and froing that you have in the vision in, da- in Daniel 11. But the, the, fo- the, the word is uh, commonly used for uh, kind of uh, the activity of uh, Meredith Klein, I think, uses the phrase, something like the phrase prophetic surveillance. Uh, can't remember. I think that's the phrase he uses. But uh, when uh, the sons of God appear before Yahweh in the beginning of Job, they've been going to and fro. That's the same verb. And then they're bringing their reports back and the eyes of the Lord uh, in second uh, uh, Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro on the earth. And uh, Jeremiah is told to go to and fro in the city of Jerusalem. So there's, I think the knowledge that's increasing in verse four, maybe the knowledge is increasing because the, the prophecy that's been sealed up is coming to fruition and you begin to see what it meant because it's happening. But I think there's also this uh, uh, kind of uh, this hint of an extension of prophetic ministry that knowledge is increasing because you have many now who are prophets who are going to and fro, who are the eyes of the Lord, uh, who observe and report on what's happening and uh, bring that before the Lord. I, I had a quick comment about this idea of um, knowledge increasing and many running to and fro. And um, 
I feel that that is, as you probably both said, um, that that is part of the unsealing of the vision. But I'm tempted to see it not just as prophetic knowledge, but kind of learning about the nature of the world um, around us, and and then that uh, helping to um, uh, to show us how these prophecies are actually being um, fulfilled, like in a, in either in our own time and age or or in history and and so um you know if i if i just think about my own experiences i um i guess i was a fairly late starter to actually reading the bible i, c- I can remember the first time i actually t- chose to read a bible at home on my own i was kind of um sort of in my mid mid-20s and as a result i can remember the first kind of impression that i had when i read most parts of the bible i can remember it fairly clearly and and when i first read um Daniel, you know, um, and I read chapter 11, I was under the impression that there was basically one king of the south and one king of the north that I had to look for. And these people had fulfilled, um, you know, after the fall of Persia, obviously, um, had fulfilled all of those events kind of from verse six onwards, I think, you know. And um, as I learned um, about history, I guess I changed my um, view and I, I could see um just reading history how that vision had been um fulfilled and i I think that's part of what's in mind in in verse four and i I bring it up because i think that our interaction with scripture is probably a more two-way thing than is sometimes made out um it's it's often said isn't it and i think fundamentally this is right but it's said that we you know we go to scripture um we just read it we get our biblical world view and then we kind of look at the whole world in in light of that and that's the way to do things but i just think things are a bit more nuanced than that there is a bit more of a two-way interaction between our um our, our gradual apprehension of scripture and our learning about the um the natural world around us and um i i think that's part of what's in mind in in verse four here Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm